I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, it is such a pleasure to welcome you. I am so excited for this episode for many reasons. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be speaking with you. Thank you. One of the things that this podcast does, as you probably know, is, you know, invites on thinkers and, and, and politicians, scholars and everything from a lot of different sides of the aisle. But there's a sort of overhang or rubric to it, which is the fight for democracy. Right, which is in this moment that's perilous, which has certainly been growing. It's not uh, didn't happen yesterday. One of the things I want to do is sort of an independent, uh, as I call myself, is really never forget the things that are at stake. That I think transcend yeah. Republican, Democrat, Americanism, and all that. So you know, when I first was uh, when your book was brought attention brought to my attention, I really ran with it because I loved it so much and thought it was probably one of the most readable, but also re- um, a- applicable. Uh, pieces mm-hmm. of scholarly work I've seen in this area. But before we do that, I just want to tell uh, a few people, I'm going to let you speak about yourself. I just want to tell everybody that uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history at New York University. Are you also a professor of Italian studies? Is that right? Yeah, it's a joint appointment. Joint appointment. Um, I yeah. am an NYU alum, undergrad, class of 96, where I studied political philosophy. So yay to that. Uh, Ruth is also <laughs> an MSNBC columnist, uh, also is on CNN. And awesome, before we forget, I want to plug Lucid, her amazing newsletter, which is all about the fight for democracy. And yeah. she expounds on issues relating to democracy, its enemies, its perils, etc. on a, is it weekly basis or is it a couple of times a week? I follow it, but I can't. It's, um, I, I haven't, I publish an essay every week and then I interview people who are on the front lines of different, you know, democracy and, and resistance and activism, all kinds of people. That's um, great. yeah. So yeah. Twice a week. Well, everybody should, should listen. That's on Substack, right? Is that right? Yeah. Cool. Um, but I want to go back. Obviously this is interview is about you. We're going to get into the depth of your work and as well as the book, but let's go back to the beginning. Can you tell everybody, you know, how you came to, your research and, uh, and what brought you to want to study this topic, how, how you got to academia. I'd love to know a little bit as what I think the listeners about, about you, Ruth. Yeah. So um, it, I came to studying fascism in a pretty uh, improbable way where I, I grew up in a beach town in California, Pacific Palisades, which is uh, right between a small town in between Santa Monica and Malibu. I'm here in LA. So, I know it well. I love yeah. it. Beautiful Looking place. at the beach. So uh, I didn't have any family connected with um, fascist, you know, regimes. So you think, well, it's the, le- the, the last place that you'd be thinking about stuff like that. But it turned out that a lot of um, people who fled Nazism in the 30s, famous people, had come to Pacific Palisades in Santa Monica. So there were all these signs of these people around. And I had a math teacher at Palisades High who was the son of this famous composer, Arnold Schoenberg, um, who kind of introduced modern music to L.A. And and so I just started talking uh, about this and I thought, what is it, you know, what does it mean that that people have to flee their their native land and come halfway around the world and start over. So I was kind of interested in this. And then at UCLA, I, I continued to study this. And then I went to graduate school. I was going to be a lawyer, um, mm-hmm. but I worked for a law firm in Century City when I was in college. And I, 
I didn't like uh, I didn't like th that type of law, so I decided to go to history grad school, and I ended up uh, specializing in fascism. And I chose Italy because um, there was kind of less done on Italian fascism, and it lasted twice as long. And so that's how I got into it. But from growing up in this California town, which mm. is kind of you know not what you'd think. And you did your uh, doctoral work at Brandeis, is that right? Yeah, I went to the went to the uh, to the East Coast, and then I ended up not being at Brandeis very much. And I wow. I went to Rome to uh, do my research for my doctorate, and I loved it so much that I basically never came back to Brandeis, and I <laughs> lived in Rome for four years. I was still um, you know enrolled as a student, sure, but I I I just and so I I really became fluent, and I learned about the culture, because if you're writing about, you know, almost psychological issues, what does it mean for people to collaborate or resist dictatorship? Um, you have to understand the culture. So, so that was useful. And then reluctantly, finally, I came back home and, and had started my career. Oh, that's great. Well, I wanted to, well, first of all, Ruth's book is, is called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Um, it is, uh, I can't recommend it enough, but I want to go back to the beginning. And I think a lot, what we'll, a lot of what we'll talk about today will overlap with some of the stuff, or most of the stuff you wrote in your book, because I think that we're in a place now where obviously America, America is so the world too, but America is very tribal. Uh, and people are throwing around terminology that is way above their pay grade understanding or even yeah, uh, a applicability, you know, and, and your enemy is a communist, your other enemy is a fascist, everybody's an autocrat, nobody knows what any of it is. So just as a sort of back to basics things, I really want to do that and never, you know, lose sight and get way too into the weeds, which I could do with you at a separate time. But we're, we're going to get into we're going to get into the broader forest here. What exactly is authoritarianism? I mean, what would be a working definition uh, of it, in your opinion, or in your scholarly view? The, the way there actually there there are even scholarly articles written about the fact that there's no one definition so that doesn't make it any any that's not very satisfying but i'm I'm using it and I use it in my book as a kind of uh, form of government that's illiberal where the executive uh, branch overwhelms the others okay. and so democratic freedoms are taken away right. and it can have many outcomes in many forms so you know, you had one-party dictatorships more common in the 20th century at fascism. You had like military coups. Um, and today authoritarianism looks a bit different because people, you still have coups sometimes, but mostly people have to come to office through elections. And then they still hold elections, but they have to manipulate those elections uh, to stay there. Or, for example, they don't, it's not like one, you still have one party states like North Korea and China, but now you keep some opposition going, but then you really take all their power away. Or you do what Putin does in Russia. If there's anybody very viable as a rival, like mm -hmm. Alexei Navalny, uh, the anti corruption crusader, you put him in jail. So you right. kind of game the system. So, so the book is a, it would kind of looks at how authoritarianism has evolved from these like one party dictatorships up to what we live with today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I also think that it's important because you do a great job in explaining Mussolini and the origins and then, and then how his playbook ended up being used by yeah. both Franco, Franco and Franco in Spain. And of course, Hitler is, is a, what exactly though 
under, I, I put it under the heading of authoritarianism. What exactly is the definition of fascism? Because I oh. think that is part, a subset, obviously. <laughs> but I would like to know, I really want to clarify it because I think yeah. it's used so inappropriately uh, in political it debate. It is. And that doesn't and mean that opponents of very bad things haven't been, aren't right in calling out those very bad things, but they're not using the right term. And I think that corrodes, the, dis corrodes the discourse. But anyway. Um, like it's, well, this is going to, there, ambiguity and uh, like vagueness is kind of built into fascism. Right. So there are traits you can, it's a, it's a cl classically a one party state, a dictatorship mm -hmm. with a leader cult. Mm -hmm. It's imperialistic. So, um, you know, Franco, Francisco Franco in Spain didn't, uh, he didn't invade other countries, but Hitler and Mussolini certainly did. So it's, it's expansionist. Mm -hmm. um, hyper-nationalist, it's in taught, you know, so when you say a one-party state, it has shuts down all democratic freedoms. Um, but Mussolini had a really good definition where he said it was a revolution of reaction, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a contradiction in terms. But so fascists wanted to really um, get rid of the established democratic order, both inside their countries and also the whole international system. And so they were revolutionaries and Mussolini had been a socialist. So what he did is he, he kept a lot of the language of uh, socialism like revolution, but it's a revolution of reaction because right. instead of emancipating workers and women, people of color, it shut it down. And so fascism came after world war one and it was a reaction to all this progress and emancipation that had been made for so many groups of people and the first like stirrings of anti-colonial um, sentiments. And it wanted to kind of shut all of that down. So that's mm -hmm. the reaction part. It's very fascinating because one of the things I think um, we've lost in the country in the sort of the collapse of, of the Republican party and Trump into, by Trump, into this authoritarian cult as we all know it is. Yeah is you know the destruction of of an idea of a, of a, what i call a venerable conservative tradition you know a center right party that is not opposed to climate change women's rights isn't aren't on the lunatic fringe don't think john f kennedy junior was at dealey plaza last week i mean all these crazy <laughs> crazy ideas that they propound um because it, you think about it it gets tied in conservatism does sometimes small c conservatism with this idea of fascism and you think, well, conservatism, when it works well, and I'm not a conservative, but I'm a centrist, has an ability to conserve the things that are good, you know what I mean? And, 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 and not make necessarily revolutionary changes where, you know, yes, I love that revolution of reaction, despite yeah. the revolution, Mussolini isn't conserving anything. Right, he's retarding progress, as was Hitler. I mean, they're they're thwarting, yeah, they're destructive. They, they're they dest destroy actually, yeah. and it's actually yeah. obviously that's where I think it, it that when when people start and they because there's such a misunderstanding of these terms, they start going, well, everybody who's on who has ever been a conservative is a fascist. It's just not historically no. true. You know? Yeah, and and actually, one of the um, so part of the book is about um, kind of finding patterns. Right. And certain things that recur over and over. And, and it does seem like it, each country it happens to seems to be unprepared. 
Right. And so I wanted to write this book to kind of say, well, hi, we can learn from history. Yeah. We don't have to be going through this unprepared because the same things happen over and over again. And one of them is that conservatives are often the ones to back these um, violent in violent insurgents. And this yep. is what Muss Mussolini was a violent criminal. So oh, was yeah. Hitler. Sure. They and a lot of these strongmen I write about, they they came in, they either had criminal records or they were under investigation. So they're crooks. And conservatives often um, either bring them into the system and like mainstream them, or they um, they back them because they think, you know, sometimes there's like an alliance, uh, how would you call it? alliance of convenience. Mm -hmm. So in the older days, um, through the through the Cold War conservatives would back these extremists because they they too didn't want the left to get power. That's right. So they let these guys do their dirty work. But the tragedy is, and this is, everybody knows the Hitler case most clearly. The von Hindenburg German, and Hindenburg, you know, collect, giving them the chancellorship. But it also happened with Mussolini. It also happened, even when there's a coup, it happened in Chile. That's my case right. study. Pinochet, yeah. and, so and in, and in they, Spain, there was a, a massive civil war going on, and that provided a sort of uh, a kind of glide path for Franco. Is that right? Yeah, he, he came, he consolidated his power during the civil war. Right. But so conservatives can also um, include religious institutions, which sure. are very important backers, and it gives them legitimacy. But what's very sad is that these, you know, some conservatives, they ally with these extremists and they do, they do well, but others get kind of destroyed. And, mm -hmm. and every single time they think, and it happened with Trump and the GOP, oh, that sure. they, they backed him early and they gave their power to him and they thought they could control him. And, uh, and then look what happened. He made the GOP his personal tool and led them down this terrible path of destruction. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was able to see this very early on, like 2016 already, oh, yeah. be, because I had studied it. I hadn't written the book yet, but I'd already, it was doing the research. So that's what's very sad is that conservatism ends up kind of tarnished and often destroyed when you have these authoritarian, after, after the experience of the authoritarian has kind of led the country into some kind of destruction, mm -hmm. conservatives aren't doing very well either. Yeah, so they are sort of, I guess, in some cases, witting, but also unwitting accomplices to it, right? Because they they have been in the past. In the past. Well, and you know what's interesting about that in our current moment, too, is especially, and speaking of Trump in particular, as a result of that Faustian bargain, the GOP and Trump, you know, you now have, and it's just rampant, uh, a red meat group of believers who are really yeah. spawns of this kind of thinking, meaning that it's all really, it really is this. It is so much about owning the libs, as the saying goes, destroying yeah. the Democratic Party, thwarting anybody who doesn't ally themselves with Trump to the point of, you know, doing the Kremlin's bidding, thinking Putin yeah. win. You know, rooting against America and everything about it, tearing down John McCain. The 2008 nominee becomes an enemy, and, and, an and enemy also, of the party, you know? So. And that's see, another part of the tragic part is that these, when you, when you follow these guys who are highly destructive, um, narcissistic, and transactional individuals, amoral, they're really yeah. amoral, and that's what yeah. Trump is, yeah. it, it forces the party to into more and more extreme positions. You know, who would have thought that the the 
you know, that, that the GOP would go along with somebody who insults veterans. I, I, and, I, and, and, and I, I actually put aside a book on POWs to, to write Strongman because it was an academic book. But I wow. feel really, I was very angry about that because I studied in many archives and, you know, read what, what POWs like McCain go through. Oh, yeah. And Trump's just insulting him. But when a party gets fused to this leader cult, there's nothing they won't put up with, even insulting a veteran. Um, right. So it's really sad. Yeah, no, it, it really, really is sad. And I, 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 it's always this, like we said, it's this sort of, um, although Trump himself is a symptom of it, you know, this kind of yeah. move toward a society that brooks no dissent, you know, that, yes. that, that, that actually creates a hegemonic kind of narrative where opposition to it, you're in many ways an enemy yeah. of the state, right? In, in, that, in that sense. And you know, you know what's so incredible is that um, basically the whole story of the GOP and Trump, everything that's going on, including shutting down dissent within the party, um, people who voted to impeach Trump uh, the second time particularly had to get body armor because <laughs> they were getting death threats. Look what happened to Mike Pence. Oh, yeah. The loyal poker face for four years. None of that credit. He didn't have any credit with Trump because the minute you you no. you cross them. Right. But all of this, these are all authoritarian dynamics that have yeah. been going on around the world. But what's so what's so sad is that all of this took place in a democracy. So it's not like like if you're in Saddam Hussein's you know Iraq and sure. you you would go to prison or you'd be killed. But What's going to happen to the people? What you know in the past when they could have easily broken away or said no, and they are in a democracy and they didn't do it. So that is even it's even more shocking because they had the freedom to say no to Trump, and yet they didn't, and they all submitted just like happened with Mussolini, Hitler, etc. It's it's shocking. I'm no. not I'm not shocked by it because I expected it, yeah, but, but it is morally and all other ways like atrocious. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, um, one of the great joys of my undergraduate education at NYU where you are was learning and studying um, Hannah Arendt, you know, the famous German yeah. philosopher. And she writes this, one of my favorite, the origins of totalitarianism, right? Which is a famous work of hers. And in that work, um, obviously, basically, people don't know. Basically, she analyzes the what she refers to kind of as the twin evils of the 20th century communism and fascism and how they represented this totalitarian um, onslaught, you know, that destroyed, you know, societies, murdered millions of people, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, and you don't hear that word as much, do you think that, um, and I think she would differentiate. Don't, do you think that we're on a road to totalitarianism or is this just because authoritarianism, authoritarianism by many people's accounts isn't necessarily totalitarianism? No. What do you think about You don't hear that as much. And that was such a, sorry, um, it was a motif you'd hear invoke so much, especially during the Cold War. Yeah. I, um, I don't use it because I really, um, the, the way that the way that she used it was for these these two states that were ex extreme yes. in because because all of authoritarianism is a continuum right and and it's true that um, Nazism and Stalinism uh, were more extreme in terms of 
you know, genocides and mass killing than some other regimes, which still had genocide. Mussolini's Italy, they committed genocide, but uh, in Libya, but there's, these are not just not as well known, but um, after the cold war, the, the phrase kind of, the term kind of went out of, you know, fell out of fashion and the way I use, I just use authoritarianism and, I try and see, look at how it's changed over the years. So I also, I'm one of the few people who doesn't use the F word for Trump very easily. I don't really call him a fascist. Uh, and I was, now, that was of, actually my next question, is Trump a yeah. fascist? Yeah. I mean, he, so it, it's very satisfying to call people fascist. It is. And a lot of people want somehow to. You, you've spiritually and rhetorically defeated Hitler when you do some way, right? It's this weird, and the Godwin's <laughs> law, right? Everybody, everything's Hitler. Obama was Hitler, George W. Bush. I find that yeah. also reprehensible anyway. That it, yeah. It, you know, but. And, and I, I guess because I studied fascism for right. like my first books were about it. I, I kind of, I don't like to misuse it. And here's the thing. And, and the whole book is about what changes and what stays the same. So right. without a doubt, there's so many fascist things going on in yes. Trump's America. And now, in fact, there's a lot of scary things going on with post-January 6th that you yes. can look at and say, oh, my God, that is pretty fascist. Oh, right. But fascism, so, but fascism, for example, like it's, as I said before, it's expansionist. It's like Putin's being more of a fascist. Right. And, and so Trump, Trump is not interested in classic military expansion. So there are certain things that don't fit, but he also does a ton of things. And in, in a way, using the word fascist doesn't actually, um, cover the scope of who he is mm -hmm. because Trump is um, he's really a 21st century person who uh, is involved the way he's involved internationally, not just with Russia, all his dealings. He as a money launderer, he is like on the supply side of all of the <laughs> uh, flows of money that keep autocrats in power. He, he through his real estate and stuff. So he's a bit of a different animal. Yeah. Very fascistic. But to call him a fascist is a little bit reductive. And so yes. I know people get mad at me that I won't do it. Right. Um, and, and I may rethink it. I may come out with the F word yeah. at some point. But I prefer <laughs> well, I mean, you've to written call a whole him book authoritarian. Detailing, uh, you know, 20th century strongmen sort of ending up with him. They shouldn't give you too hard a time, Ruth. I mean, well, it's also like, <laughs> like, you know, like people like Erdogan in Turkey. Yeah. He's yeah. not really a fascist. Like right. these people yeah, are authoritarians. Yeah. They're what? Um, I'm sorry. They're author They're all authoritarians. authoritarians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and fascism is a stage. Yes. It was a stage of authoritarianism. Um, oh, and today we're way. in a different stage. That's the whole. That's, that's the point. That's the point. I'm I'm very interested too in your book um, because there's such an emphasis always on uh, Hitler and on Mussolini and just yeah. In discourse, and obviously you've written about them in a scholarly way, but I love that you did, and I'm sure you've been asked this question too, because me, the non-ideologue, I, I want to go there because I'm always somebody who, you know, was always, Hitler was always preeminent. Obviously it was Jewish and that's all you heard about. I, not all I heard about. It was sort of yeah. like there was Hitlerism, Nazism, fascism, and oh yeah, communism was bad, whatever. But you're like, excuse me, there are millions of people killed in the gulag. Stalin was a disgusting individual, Mao Zedong was too, um, who murdered a lot of people. Now, in your book, you happen to cover uh, two people that 
I've always been fascinated by. I don't know why Idi Amin, Dada of, uh, of uh, Uganda, and uh, Muammar Gaddafi, maybe because I'm a kid of the 80s and he was sort of the opponent and the, you know, allied with the Soviets and then, you know, in sort of hero versus villain terms. But what made you choose to write about them? I mean, there's good reason to write about them, but, and I, before you answer, say that I feel like Idi Amin and Gaddafi would be associated more in this, in the Cold War framework with a kind of, third world solidarity yeah right yeah that that would also might not be considered left-wing authoritarianism but it certainly aligns itself with marxist movements of the day is that fair yeah especially well especially Gaddafi, who really was this creature revolutionary from the left yes and basically the book is um you know some people complain because i don't have many communists in the book and what i wanted to do as a historian of fascism because you can't do everything it becomes no, 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 like no. an encyclopedia i <laughs> wanted to show you know start with fascism and then show what happens to all these fascists and fascist things when right. fascism dies so you have the cold war and you have military coups like pinochet who's really important for even like bolsonaro today and yes. all kinds of bad things are going on that remind me of before the coup in Chile. But I also wanted to put Gaddafi in there and cover uh, the anti-colonial right. um, coups. And, and it's very interesting when you do that. So Gaddafi was this total anti-imperialist totally. and he came from humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning he gave like women all these rights and he talked about equality and then he became this you know, horrible dictator for 42 years. But when you, when you look at these, um, anti-colonial leaders, I also have Mobutu mm -hmm. uh, in the Congo, sure. you see kind of interesting um, points of continuity. So for example, um, in racial terms, the, the uh, anti-colonial leaders were certainly not, they, were, they hated white Europeans. So they're oh, very yeah. opposite to both the fascists and then people like Orban and Trump today. Yes. But they were, they were the same in their misogyny, their hatred of women, their homophobia. Yep. That all continues. Their thievery, their Gaddafi propaganda. Sex slaves, is that right? Didn't Gaddafi? Yeah. yeah. And Gaddafi, I put him in there because uh, Italy occupied Libya and there's all yeah. these like ties. I wanted to show how these, the, there's these, these ties and these stories of con continuity that you might not expect. So Gaddafi grew up like, very anti-fascist because mm -hmm. his country had been ruined by the Italians. Right, yeah. But then he makes these deals with Berlusconi. There's so they're transactional. But Gaddafi uh, kept, yeah, Gaddafi and Mussolini. Uh, they they have these uh, these state-sponsored systems of like sexual pleasure, and yeah. it's as though for your for your audience, this is a scary thought, but this mm -hmm. is as though Jeffrey Epstein. Okay. We're the head of the country. And if you know anything about Jeffrey Epstein or others like him, they have scouts. No relation. No relation, Jeffrey Epstein. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sure you I know. I'm just saying. It's a common name. It's a common I know, name. but I've been asked that, believe it or not. Anyway, I bet you have. That's a good thing with having a, an, an odd name. There's no other thing. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, I mean, there sure. are a lot of them, but a lot of them are in Algeria and places like that. Right. They're not. I'm sorry. But Jeffrey Epstein, you know, he used scouts. Yeah. to recruit the women. He had fixers and handlers and a whole like apparatus. So if you're the head of the state, so what Mussolini did and then Gaddafi, you use your secret police to track down women. Um, and then in Mussolini's case, he had, um, I think he slept with like the calculation was like uh, over 14,000 women. 
um, dur during his 20 years in power, he would invite them to his office. And uh, who knows if it was consensual or not, probably a lot of time he raped people. And then uh, his secret police would, would be following them. They became persons of interest. And so he had this, he had hundreds and hundreds of, of lovers. And Gaddafi went one step further and he actually had his secret police, you know, recruit women, uh, not recruit them, but he would have them like surveyed and they would be kidnapped. And or he would go to the university to give a speech and he built a sex dungeon under the University of Tripoli so he could have his ways immediately. And he kept these he kept women and some men uh, uh, imprisoned uh, as his sex slaves for many years. And some of these women were the same women who served as his bodyguards. So Gaddafi, Mr. Macho. When he would go on foreign trips, the press would focus on the fact that he, not only he had these incredible like robes and stuff, but he had women bodyguards who were uh, fighters, like they were soldiers. They were also, I discovered this doing my research, that was their day job. Their night mm -hmm. job was being his sex slave. So it's like a lesson in if you have absolute power, if you're Jeffrey Epstein, but you also are the head of the state, nobody can stop you from doing whatever you want. And these men are there. They have a mania to have power control and as many and possess as many bodies as possible. Um, everything in the state is like theirs to possess. So they, if you're Putin, you steal all the natural resources, you're a kleptocrat. And then if you're, you know, Gaddafi, you have all the bodies as well as all the oil. So it's like this um, manic, these, these manic individuals who amass all this power and nobody can stop them. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic with Gaddafi having been the child of a fascist world that basically by uh, yeah. empowering the state, the executive branch, for lack of a better word, the state itself to do this, he's sort of doing a fascistic kind he of- did. Yeah. That's the that's the sad thing about uh, the, the, some of the anti-colonial leaders who really, at the beginning of their careers, they they wanted they did these coups to get rid of you know kind of European imperial and that they saw as fascistic, and then when they got power and Idi Amin the same, uh, they became uh, they did the same things, the same suppressions of freedoms. Um, yeah. So no. it's it's a very they're very interesting cycles in history. So that's why I wanted to include them because you learn a lot. Uh, I, I didn't also just want to do the usual like we're going to write about white Europeans because authoritarianism is a global thing, and I really wanted the book to be global. And I think that's in a way without good, uh, you know depicting or analyzing sort of the arc of the relationship of communism to the third world, a way of it making sure that you're inclusive in your definition of authority yes. and not just making it exclusively, for lack of a better word, a right-wing phenomenon. Would you talk a little bit about, because I think most people don't know, other than from The Last King of Scotland, great Forrest Whitaker played mm -hmm. it, don't really understand who Idi Amin was, why he came to power. Um, I was actually, you'll, I appreciate this, I was introduced to Idi Amin, always being a curious student of history, of course, from the television movie Raid on a Teddy back yeah. in the day when the Israeli army uh, rescued the hostages from, a, I think the PLO had hijacked an Air France airliner yeah. and Idi Amin gave them safe uh, refuge there. And then Israel had actually designed the airport um, and they knew what to do. That was kind of clever. Yeah, that was but very not, dramatic. Jonathan yeah. Netanyahu was murdered there at Benjamin's brother. 
which I actually think psychologically explains a lot of his his insanity. I do. Um, Agreed. Not that I think it just sent him over. You know what I mean? It became let's just do anything we can because I'm angry. Um, although, for the record, I'm a big Zionist. But anyway, not to get off subject. Who is it? You mean? What's going on in Uganda? 1970 around there, he ascends. Is that right? Yeah, and and he's he's interesting because, uh, and the same was true of Mobutu. They he was a he came from the military, right. and he was trained by. Um, so he 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 was trained by the Europeans. Uh, right. So a lot of these guys got training by the Europeans. They wanted to overthrow. Right. Um, so he was in the King's African Rifles. Um, and which was not only in Uganda, it was in fact, Obama's grandfather was in the King's African Rifles in, in, in British, in Kenya. In Kenya. Right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so this were kind of large colonial forces that trained these guys, but he in, in having this colonial training, he developed a hatred of uh, colonial ideologies. So he, he came in through a coup and he promptly, um, you know, did all this kind of dictator's playbook um, of suppressing opposition. He also did, he was very, as he had the same personality, but even more, um, even more extreme as many of these guys. Uh, he was impulsive. He was paranoid. Mm-hmm. He, so he would, uh, he surrounded himself with uh, uh, sycophants and flatterers and family. And so what happens with these guys and, and he didn't last very long because he took these qualities to an, to even more extreme than some. He lasted less than 10 years because he stopped listening to any kind of sound advice. Mm-hmm. And he thought that he had the solution to all the problems. He didn't have to listen to everyone. And in fact, this British doctor um, he gave, who was a psychiatrist, um, did a profile on him and said he suffered from delusions of grandiosity. Right. And in fact, in the book, I don't remember the full title. He gave himself a title, which is like it, it was like three sentences in the book long. Lord of the fishes, king of the world, you know, master of the universe. Right. And he meant it seriously. Oh, yeah. So so he's a good case study. He's like compressed because he didn't he lasted, you know, much less uh, in time wise. But he did all the same things. So he gets there in a brutal fashion and then he represses everybody. He makes stupid decisions. So. Um, the South, Ace, South Asian community was uh, the backbone of yeah. uh, the economy of Uganda because they were the shopkeepers, they were yep. the small businesses. Yep. And, and he decided to kick them out uh, because right. he, he didn't want any foreigners. He wanted right. you know Uganda for Ugandans. Yep. But then the economy did badly. He had to invite them back. Right. <laughs> so this is very typical. And then he got uh, he overreached and some people are looking at what Putin's doing in Ukraine is like Putin overreaching. So they get, they get like this kind of, again, this manic sense of their um, destiny. Very and history. Trumpian delusions of grandeur. Yeah. And they're going to, and they all love Napoleon. They all think yes. they're Napoleon. So Idi Amin's downfall is when he tried, he decided to annex part of Tanzania. Right. And, and, and that like, that didn't, that didn't go over. And then he lost power. He and he had power. made so many enemies yeah. um, that it was easy to take him down. But a lot of them do this kind of these crazy, uh, either military interventions, like Gaddafi almost lost power at some point because he went, he made a war with Chad and it was like, right. it was a disaster. And there were so many assassination attempts during that time on him. 
So they, they're their own worst enemies sometimes. Um, yeah. But they sometimes they hang in there. Gaddafi lasted 42 years. Can you imagine? I, Our country's exhausted after four years of Well, it was uh, <laughs> in 2011. I know. What, 2011, you know, the Obama administration and that intervention got finally got, got him out. Uh, of course, there's debate on whether that was the right thing to do um, or not. I mean, it is the right thing to do morally, as is removing any dictator. But did that lead to did that destabilize Libya? Not that that might be a different podcast. But yeah, but what's interesting is that e even when all of it started, he uh, Gaddafi was so in his bubble. Yes, he kept repeating, "My people love me. They would never do this. My people." So he was <laughs> he was actually psychologically unprepared, even though he's paranoid. Oh my God! He 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 was very unprepared for this to happen. For this, and thing, yeah. he and he could he missed actually a lot of um, moments that he could have negotiated. He could have had a different outcome than getting like you know killed on cell phone video. But he he they can't they can't turn back. They this kind of personality they can only go forward and dig themselves in. They never admit they're wrong. They never apologize. No. It's like a Trump. Yeah, so I mean, what we've seen, like, yeah, well, sorry, just what we've seen in America in yeah. miniature yeah. is is we've had a little experience, a little taste of what it is like to deal with a dictatorial personality. That's right. Well, we certainly have seen the damage done from a president first ever to refuse the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, that's and typical. And, yeah, I mean, and then you yeah. thought you'd never see that here, and then you know, the resistance to not just punishment, but the refusal to acknowledge that in any way um, this was actually a seismic event, that somehow it was, well, people broke in, you shouldn't break into the Capitol as if that's what happened. They were just, you know, ransacking the Capitol to steal on the flagpole or something. You know, it, it's it's become such a crazy, um, sick argument when we can't even call sedition by its name, you know? But I mean, I'm yeah. glad to see the Oath Keepers were brought up on charges of seditious conspiracy, but you've got all these people there and the scary doing it. And the scary thing that we've learned is how many of them were, you might say part of the bourgeoisie. I mean, they were doctors, mm -hmm. and lawyers and dentists. That's and, it. And that's a, a factor. These are people who are not, you know, yeah. despite the stereotype, you know, rural uh, red cap wearing uh, yahoos for about, sorry to offend anybody. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were, they were regular people who could be your postman. You know, and, and they they were architects. So, one of the most interesting analysis of who was in January sixth, and it's really important. So, yeah. you know, Trump had created like this big tent for all the extremists, all right. kinds of extremists, and he'd done that over four years. So, the people who came to rescue him, and I really view January sixth as like a leader cult rescue operation. Okay, um, they they wanted to save him from you know his unjust fate. <laughs> and so you had all kinds of extremists, like actually a, a total cross section of extremists in America, uh, active duty and retired military, law enforcement. So uh, sovereign sheriffs, you had some of those. Then you had the Oath Keepers and the, the kind of known extremists. But you had this new group. And these were people who were unaffiliated with groups and they were architects and CTOs and doctors and, you know, middle-class, middle-aged is what someone who studied them called them, middle-class, middle-aged, and quote, not fitting the profile. 
Um, and they mingled. It was a great recruiting event because they mm -hmm. mingled with all these known extremists. You mm -hmm. also had almost 60 uh, GOP officials, okay. local and state GOP officials. So everybody came together, including these like architects and okay. other people who, quote, one wouldn't expect. Um, mm -hmm. And and that gave you a sense of who of what the sentiments uh, are in America, right? Yeah. Well, and and it's not unlike the uh, Jews will not replace us marchers in Charlottesville when we they were out yes. and seeing you know insurance company workers and like I said teachers and doctors and all sorts of things and you saw them in plain clothes for crying out loud you know yeah. using blood and soil motifs. Third Reich yeah. language. I mean, it, it. This was not explicitly Third Reich language, although there were shirts that said Camp Auschwitz and Six Million was not enough. And you know, though this wasn't, I wouldn't say by nature anti-Semitic, but it was certainly informed by that and informed by an overthrow. I think of a candidate who was supported by historically marginalized groups. You know, and mm -hmm. represented in many ways a threat to that bulwark, you know, there is a real, totally. I don't think it's the only argument and we're going to, it's going to help me segue to this to your ne next part of your book. I don't think it's the only argument. I don't think everything's reducible just to race and gender or even white supremacy, but that's a huge part of it. White panic, you know, panic at the white disco, as I call it, because mm -hmm. it is, it is existential to them. Um, mm -hmm. However, what I think I want to talk about too, and this segues again, that your book does, it's so few books on this do. And it totally has been something I have said, Ruth, without knowing you and said after 2016 is the celebrity culture nature of Trump's ride. Mm, how yeah. you, you know, go back to Mussolini, talk about the newsreels in the early days of cinema, showing this guy as the great anti-communist, you know, totally obscuring the fact that he's a murdering fascist, right? Just to sort of yeah. again oppose the sort of red uh, scare of the day. But the thing about this cult of personality, the, the sort of Hollywood star system you write about, um, kind of concurrent, the emergence of that is concurrent with the rise yeah. of the 20th century strongman. That is to me such an important insight. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you why. Uh, one, even before the, I thought about the 2016 election, I did my graduate work in Brown in American Studies. And one mm, of the great studies, program. Like, thank you. Thank you. One of the, the, the great things that I wanted to study, because my background actually was as a Broadway producer, despite my political philosophy undergraduate education was, I was a purveyor of culture and saw how that impacts things, for lack of a better word, to reduce it to that, and how culture and politics are just airtight, you know, that there's this amazing pod to do and interchangeability, interchangeability mm -hmm. but also interlock nature of them, that analyzing politics without looking at cultural production cultural motifs and the way culture is downstream from politics kind of is inadequate, right? You have to keep those things linked And Your book goes into that. And I thought that was so great because we often get definitions of wonderful books that don't delve into that. Can you talk a little bit about this Hollywood showmanship, you might say being endemic to strong? Yeah. 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 That's, that was the, one of the most interesting right. things I found um, that, when Mussolini um, and and Lenin too, he had a personality cult, but his only started when he was dying. So forget that. Forget um, but listen, when Mussolini, uh, you know, was in the in the 1920s, uh, was the age of uh, silent cinema, and so Mussolini actually learned from you know he he gesticulated anyway. You could see you know things about photographs of him before he he took power, but. Yeah. The whole personality cult and the leader cult and the, the public profile was very influenced by 
by by Hollywood right. and by the cinema in general. And so just as you had these, you know, uh, stars would like have these cards with their, they would sign these cards and people like you, 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 uh, you collect baseball cards or sports cards. They had fan cards and Mussolini consciously emulated that celebrity culture. Mm. And he would send, he would like send a photograph of himself in a bathing suit for summer. So he's, you know, he has a shirt off and everything. And he would sign it at the bottom as though he was a star. <laughs> um, and it would be published in a film magazine. I have, I, I didn't have a good, um, it wasn't in my book because the, the quality was poor, I understand. but he would do stuff like that. So he became, so the, the strongman is the star of his nation. Right. And in that. fact, it's kind star of hard. Of his nation. I love He's that. the star. He's the Devo. He's the star. And it's not that easy, um, to be a male star when you have a strongman because right. they don't want any competition. Yep. And and the best the, the the most effective strongmen in terms of bonding with the public are they often come from some background in communications. So Mobutu and Mussolini were journalists. Berlusconi, who had a huge personality cult, was oh, TV. Yeah. He owned TV networks. And right. then we know Trump was in reality TV. Trump's a marketer. Yeah. These people know how to communicate their actors, their performers, and they the one thing they do very early on, and they they established a direct contact with the people that's right. unmediated. So Mussolini had newsreels and he would stare at people with his like crazy eyes. Hitler used the radio because Hitler had this very emotional speaking style where he'd start screaming. But yes. people felt like they had a connection with him. So he had radio. And then, you know, Trump had Twitter and Twitter is the same because it's just him directly with his weird spelling and capitalization right. to the people or he rallies and they all love rallies. For the and same he way. was, I have to say, I hate to credit any evil, but his Twitter feed was a way to circumvent, you know, consensus. He helped collapse consensus, you know, and it was smart. And they all, they all do this. And the person who's now, uh, who's very interesting, um, who's still doing it because of course Trump can't be on Twitter anymore. Modi in India, he right. uses Instagram. Right. And he, he Instagrams his life and he has a hugely popular, he's very skilled or whoever yeah. works for him uh, at, at Instagramming his life. And so this made, stuff still and, goes on today. Yeah. And Modi's interesting. I remember right before the pandemic, Trump, it was, it was 2020, Trump went over to India and spoke with Modi in this stadium. I, you probably remember that. Yeah, was, I remember really, those. It was insane. I watched this, but the thing that also, you know, people over here, because again, global politics eludes a lot of Americans, but, you know, you have what, 80% India, 80% of India is, I guess, Hindu, and you got 20% that's Muslim, and Modi has made a centerpiece of his his, his leadership and attack and, and a, an assault and I'm assuming a imprisonment and murder of, of a Muslim minority. And, and I, I, you know, that, I mean, you know, not on any kind of racial exacerbation or angst is really a tool in all their playbooks. And, and you know, there were Trump and Modi as if they were, it almost was like the glad, it was like a bread and circus or something from, you know what it I was. mean? From a Roman and, Empire. Yeah. It was crazy. And, and one of the things I wanted to do with the book is because they're so skilled at yeah. having these glossy cults of personality, yeah. they're directing our attention away from their crimes. Right. Um, and so I, I wanted to take on these myths like Mussolini made the trains run on time 
or, you know, authoritarians make us better. They make right. the nation great again. Um, and, and I wanted to take that on and kind of look behind the curtain. And, and so I have a picture in the book of Hitler um, who, so Hitler is, you know, he, he, he was, uh, he didn't, it took him a long time to get to power. He right. had his switch, it failed. And he was obsessed with Mussolini because Mussolini got to power in only three years. And so he was Hitler's hero. And so Hitler besieged him with letters and he wanted his signed photograph. And Mussolini was like, this person's a loser. I am not replying to him. So, so Hitler was trying everything to perfect his, um, to get some charisma because he's not, unlike Mussolini, didn't have natural charisma. No. So Hitler hired a hypnotist. He hired a voice coach and he had this photographer who later became his state photographer, take pictures of him practicing his gestures in front of the mirror in the 1920s. So that's what I mean by um, yeah. taking back the curtain to show that these guys are, a lot of them are frauds, oh, but yeah. people fall for them. And they don't have a quote, natural charisma, all of them. They, they work very hard at being the Devo, being the star. And right. I wanted to kind of show that to the, to the public because it's so easy to fall for their propaganda. Yeah. And I think, I think like your to point, the uh, trains running on time or so-and-so fed the poor, or whomever we're, whomever we're talking about. One of the things that I think is important too, um, in, in discussing, you know, communist dictators is that their promise, right, is an egalitarian utopia. And, but the only way you can get there is if you, you know, if, if there's compulsory and mandatory ways of behavior, belief, and otherwise, whether it be Mao's culture revolution or the collectivization of the pe peasants and under Stalin, all that stuff, which, which, you know, promises a better future and leads to war and death and, and imprisonment and all these horrible things. So you're right to dispel these sort of, well, he got, you know, he was very effective at this, you know I mean? You know, it's like, okay, yeah. but they were mass murdering fraudulent crooks, you know, and it, you have to, in the gradation of how you evaluate something, don't be morally obtuse, you know what I mean? And that's left that's and right. You know, it took historians a long time to admit on the evils of Stalinism, you know, because there was yeah, a sort exactly. of left-leaning kind of, not, I find that hard to believe, but I mean that people would say, well, it's okay if it's over there. It's not okay anywhere, you know? Yeah, and, I have no patience with that. And, and, no, and, authoritarianism and that's another, is, yeah, is, is yeah. A, kind of like runaway train. It's almost a discursive idea that doesn't have a boundary, right? Doesn't it just kind of break through any norm or to assault the rule of law in its, in its pathway, you know? Um, and, uh, but I, but this Trump uh, celebrity culture, <laughs> Um, Nexus is fantastic because I, one of the things I was saying, I'll tell you what I said, and everybody was sitting there, you know, gobsmacked, sad, and shocked by his election. I said, <laughs> I did say this and I wasn't being glib or flippant. I said, what do you expect from the nation of Kim Kardashian? I mean, meaning when you have a culture of people yeah. that are, education is not prime, you know, you have high degrees of people who don't aren't educated or don't read, who have, who are grown up and are addicted to not just social media, but being famous for doing nothing. And you have a television star from an incredibly popular seven seasons on NBC, you know, yeah. run for office against, you know, an incredibly qualified female candidate, which was a problem, but someone who is not the greatest of politicians. I mean, Hillary Clinton, you have yeah. this total uh, clown, you know, who can step in and perform. And I think that that's amazing that you talk about that in the book because the showmanship is 
important when people say it's just this or it's just that or no it's very I, yeah, yeah I, I wanted people to take these things seriously the same with the masculinity we can laugh at and i was Putin taking yeah. his shirt off you know taking the ice baths and mussolini with shirt off and trump with all his you know and and i couldn't i didn't have it in the book but you know trump doesn't take his shirt off <laughs> because he's Thank not God. in shape but he actually hitler is, he didn't actually either, right? did hitler this. Didn't take no shirt. hitler was quite prudish. Right. Um, his way of emoting was through his like voice. Right. But Trump actually in 2019, okay. Trump tweeted, he didn't, it wasn't a re retweet. So somebody, he or someone did this, photoshopped his head onto the body of, of Sylvester Stallone in Rocky three. And you can find this <laughs> and, and he sent it out from his own account. And that was his equivalent of stripping his shirt off. So he borrows another man's body. Um, but I, so, you know, we can laugh at this, but it's deadly serious. And so I wanted people to take right. all of this things that we can kind of say, oh, well, that's just him being a clown seriously, because the people who did it in the past yeah. um, did, they killed people. Oh yes. Well, so. I think, I think it's such a great insight too, because be clowning oneself, if that's a word, right, is actually a way to it, reveal an unserious country and its inability to discern what matters and what doesn't, what the rule of law is. Totally. And what the world. So it allows this uh, pathway, this opening, you might say, right, to for a Trump to come in and for people to go, yeah, and this is the guy that shaved WWF uh, chairman Vince McMahon's head in the wrestling ring like four years before he was president. People go, come on, the guy doesn't, he doesn't mean it. We heard that. That's oh, no big deal. That's He's a New thing. York Democrat. He's a performer thinking that is somehow benign when, as your book points out, and, and it's so important, precisely the opposite of true. That's the danger. Yeah. They don't take it seriously. And, to, and and Hitler was called a clown. Uh, there was jokes about Hitler that he was just like, he looked like a typical Austrian waiter. Mussolini, forget about it. You know, he was, people called him a buffoon right. and made fun of him. And then like, it wasn't until it's too late uh, that people realized that that was, that was probably the, not the whole picture. When I saw all of these things happening, um, with Trump. And I started writing about Trump really early, like 2015, because the minute I saw him start retweeting white nationalist stuff and all the things he was doing, I was like, uh Oh, this is really bad. So I basically, that's when I started writing for CNN and I covered the campaign. And I was, I was just even through today, I'm trying to warn people. And that's why I wrote the book is to warn people. And, and, you know, like you said, the patterns are always, um, I guess you might say alive, or if even if they're dormant, yeah. they're easily um, activated because you have, a, you have a Putin quote in your book, which is so relevant to now. Russia is not a project; it is a destiny. Destiny. But here we are, you know, at the what I think could be the collapse of the post-war order if this really got bloody. In my yeah. opinion, I mean that's another podcast too. But you know, you have that. You like you said that fascistic slash dictatorial ambition that is so grand as much as it's delusional, but so um, perilous, you know, in terms yes. of what the implications are. And I, I was amazing when I read that, I went, oh boy, you know, and Putin's been obviously a thorn in the side of the West now for a long time, but Russia is not a project, it is a destiny. Great quote. All right, so before we go, I've got to ask you this, and I know you're probably going to say, I'm not in the business of this, but I think your book is so <laughs> terrific. And I, and I always want scholars on the program to help us understand it, because I think 
He's, you know, the understanding of this is obviously, as you know, not facile and not reductive. Do you think America will cease to be a functioning democracy? Um, there, there is that risk. And you know, what would that look like? Yeah. Um, that would look, there's a reason that, you know, Tucker Carlson and the GOP are all trotting over to Hungary because that's a model of what yeah. we call electoral autocracy. So I was saying right. before, you hold elections, but you have already taken control of most of the electoral machinery and the judges so that you, most of the time, the results come out the way you need them to. And if there are cases or challenges, you've, you've got control of the people, they're loyalists. So mm -hmm. we, could, we could be heading into something like that. There are all kinds of other scenarios. For example, as soon as the um, the Republicans would capture all of Congress, mm -hmm. they you know they would move to impeach Biden, impeach Harris. I think the Republican or, House will do that because it doesn't. Yeah. Be, I mean, it's going to be vengeance anyway for their hero. You know. Yeah, and then and then there's you know these other ideas floated like uh, for example. So I when I hear things, I think of them, I think, I try and always think, how do autocrats think? Because that's the key to like how Trump thinks. Right. So there's, when people said, oh, Trump could become speaker of the house. And that like on the surface, that's totally crazy. He doesn't know any rules of the house. He couldn't care less, but. He was the 45th president of the United States. <laughs> he knew nothing. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, but then you become third in line for succession. I know. And so if something happens to the, First two so Kamala, people, right, you become right. president, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. No, no, I'm not no, that is a viable. That is a, uh, a possible, if not a probable, scenario. So, so basically, what I'm trying to say is, if they capped, we don't. If they, because 2024 is really far away. Yes. And Trump is not very patient, and he also mm -hmm. needs immunity from prosecution. All his, mm -hmm. you know, his, his civil and criminal probes are closing in. He's had a lot of you know, uh, setbacks recently. So it's the key is if they, if Republicans control Congress, we could be in for all kinds of, um, um, unpredictable moves yes, and, right. and it never repeats exactly the same way, even though the intention is the same. So that's, that's what I think. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you're making that point of that great quote. It's attributed to Mark Twain, but hi Mark Twain, excuse me, history doesn't repeat, but it, it does rhyme, you know, and, yeah. and the speculation or the, or your theories, notwithstanding, they're all terrifying because your work is so important. Um, and they bring so much important stuff to, to, to attention. Folks, Ruth Ben Giat, professor of NYU, her book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Make sure you also subscribe to her newsletter, Lucid, which is on Substack. Uh, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it has been a delight. I've learned a tremendous amount, uh, which is one of the reasons I want to have you. And I hope everybody follows you and, uh, and does their best to soak this up because we are at a, uh, an inflection point and I think your voice is, um, is essential. So thank you. Thanks for joining. Thanks. It's a pleasure.